Welcome back to another episode of Coach Coddle's Corner, where you get to hear some of the greatest stories from some of the greatest people in the world of lacrosse. Coach, who do we have on the podcast today? This is Coach John Donowski from Duke University, and I can't tell you how much fun I'm, I'm looking forward to having with this man here to do the podcast. Uh, we are putting him on the Budweiser hot seat today, and uh, we're going to have an absolute blast, uh, and hopefully you'll get to know what kind of a man John Donowski is. He's he's a great coach, and you see his public persona, but as a human being, John is as good as they come, and uh, he's a dear friend, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Today's episode is presented by Demosphere. What do you need from your technology partner? Customized registration, league and scheduling tools, a platform that streamlines work across your entire organization. Demosphere has all that and more with one login. Reach out today to the team behind the team sports before your next season. We started off a little bit talking about your all-time leading percentage passer at Rutgers University, uh, 1,000%. Was it the one pass that you completed? Was it to a back out of the backfield or was it down the field? Just make it up. Was it outside the numbers you threw from one hash to the other? Well, Dave, let's let's set the scene here a little bit, all right? <laughs> it was uh, it was a cold November, uh, thirty eight degree day on the campus, uh, Piscataway, New Jersey, on Rutgers campus. Right? We're playing the Colgate Red Raiders. Their quarterback was this guy, uh, Mike, uh, I think it was, last name was Parr, P-A-R-R, but the running back was Mark Van Egan, who, for real football fans, uh, know that he had about a 10-year uh, career with the Oakland Raiders as a running back. Well, they ran the triple option in those days, and uh, he ran for about 240 yards against us. Um, opening kickoff, Tom Sweeney broke his ankle, uh, one of our wide receivers, and I think our whole team just went, uh, you know, so now it's 42 nothing. There are 10 seconds to go. I had played JV all year. This is my first varsity appearance. Coach, Coach Speranza looked at me and said, Do you want to go in? And I said, Absolutely, put me in. So I ran on the field. I had a really clean jersey with clean white pants. All the guys in the huddle had mud on them. Dirt. They were sweating. They're looking at me. You know, call play. Get out under center. Right? Get out under center. Uh, I look at the safety. He is 50 yards drop back. You know, everybody's dropped back 10 seconds ago. <laughs> but nevertheless, I was trained well. I read the strong side linebacker, read the strong safety. I threw it out in the flat. Edgar Robinson caught the ball. And the game ended, and uh, and that was that. And so, now, how far? How long did this pass go for? Well, in the air, I'm going to say probably about 20, uh, 20 yards, and um, but I'm going to say that uh, net gain zero. <laughs> one for one for no yards. <laughs> no yards. So let's start back. At, you, you started coaching at CW Post. You were an assistant at CW Post at the time. What made you a high school teacher at the time? Well, if um, for about 10 years, I couldn't keep a job, right? I, I you know, every other uh, graduated, um, got my degree from Post, CW Post, uh, in, in uh, my master's in counseling and college student development. And, uh, you know, did whatever a young coach did then. Bartended, uh, coached varsity football at Jericho High School. I coached uh, JV lacrosse at East Meadow High School. I coached JV lacrosse at, at, at Seaford High School, um, taught, uh, you know, um, coached at uh, Merrick Avenue Middle School, mm -hmm. you know. So, um, you know, did everything that, that just hustled to try to make some money. Um, in those days, teaching jobs on Long Island were hard to find. Uh, but I was a science teacher by trade. So um, I tried to figure it out. But my first opportunity um, to coach in college uh, was under Tony Seaman. Tony Seaman um, was a full-time teacher at Limbrook High School, and um, he accepted the job as the head coach at CW Post, and uh, then I was his assistant for um, for one year, making 
$1,000. Wow. Now, Tony, Post has a little success, and Tony moves on to... Yeah, to Penn. I mean, this was unprecedented at the time, it, you know, and, and it's still unprecedented. A high school coach goes to CW Post, and CW Post by no means was a household name in college lacrosse. Uh, we went 13-3, and three, and, um, and Tony was very creative, very innovative um, as a high school coach, and certainly he brought that same innovation. Um, I can tell you we lost three games. Uh, we lost to uh, uh, Air Force Academy. We lost to um, uh, Delphi, you know, were two of our losses, and, and we lost to Delphi by a goal. And uh, Tony was a, 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 did a great job with those guys and interviews for the job at Penn. You know, a lot of guys were, you know, making really good money as, as teachers, you know, in Nassau County. And, and to make that move was really unheard of. Um, and But Penn took a chance, you know, on Tony, and the rest was history. And, and then so the, 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 the full-time, you know, without full-time, but the head coach opens up. I wasn't nearly ready for it, but – there was an opportunity that just kind of fell in my lap um, since I had been the assistant coach for one year. And, and I had a chance then to make $4,000 as the head coach <laughs> instead of $1,000. So let's go. And how did, how did, how did the post thing work out? The post really was, was terrific in that, uh, you know, um, I'd been married now for a year. And um, because I had my master's in counseling, uh, the job opened up in residence life. So I actually was a full-time residence life counselor. We lived on campus. Um, you know, we had a free apartment. We had two meal passes, uh, you know, when, when the cafeterias were open. So we had our meals taken care of. We had our housing taken care of. And, um, and I could be on campus. I could be fully engaged. I could be as much a full-time coach, you know, as, as possible. And uh, it was a great time. Uh, you know, to be at post. Tony had had did a fantastic job recruiting the year before, so we had some terrific kids coming in, and um, and, and so that's how we that's how we got it started. And you got on a little bit of a run at post, and then your next challenge was Hofstra. What made you leave CW Post to go to Hofstra? Well, growing up, my brother is 14 years older than me, and he played football and lacrosse at Hofstra played for the legendary Howdy Myers, right, who's in the Lacrosse Hall of Fame, was the head football and lacrosse coach at Johns Hopkins before he came to, to Hofstra. And he was he's really credited with one of the men who really spurred the growth of, of lacrosse on Long Island in, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And, um, and so Hofstra was always the name in lacrosse on Long Island. It was the place where if you were a high school player, that's where the high school championships were held. Um, if you if you loved club lacrosse, and you saw the Mount Washington Lacrosse Club, you know, travel from you know Maryland up to Long Island, that's where the games were held. You know the the uh, you know the Maryland Lacrosse Club, the Brine Lacrosse Club. It, it was really the center uh, of lacrosse, and they had astroturf and lights. I believe. Um, they were the second facility besides the Astrodome to actually have an artificial surface. So it was a very cool environment. It was, uh, they had tradition and it paid $6,000. Now, not only could, you know, um, there was a little more tradition, nicer facilities and, and post was terrific, you know, in terms of facilities and the people, but Hofstra was just, you know, for me growing up on Long Island, you know, that was the place where you wanted to work. And you you really had some really good teams at the end of Hostra. So you, you started there in what, 2000, and, uh, excuse me, 1986. Mm -hmm. And your last season was 2006. It, it was really an interesting uh, period because, um, you know, the history, uh, again, uh, of Hofstra is, you know, they hired me as a part-time coach because they were kind of de-emphasizing the sport on campus. Uh, the previous coach was Harry Royal, who was the defensive coordinator in football, and he was the head men's lacrosse coach. So he, you know, he had two jobs. And they said, listen, you know what? We're just gonna, we're gonna make Coach Royal the defensive, he's gonna stay and just coach football, and we can just hire somebody to work part-time. 
you know, I tell people all the time that if that was a full-time job, I never would have gotten it because there were other guys who would have had better credentials, better resumes. And if the job were full-time, you know, certainly they would have, they would have chosen that person ahead of me who was part-time. But I think the beauty of my resume was that I was already coaching part-time. So they said, Hey, listen, this guy's done it at post, you know, he can just do it here. Um, and, and so, and we had beaten Hofstra two out of the three years. So maybe that was helpful, but at the end of the day, it, it was a part-time, it was a part-time job. And, and so, uh, and the other part was after two years, we only had two guys left in the program from two years before. So it was really a clean slate. We were really starting fresh. Um, and, and it was really a lot of fun because the guys that I coached with, they were part-timers as well. And we were having a blast. You know, we were young. We were competing against the legends in the sport. You know, it, it was, you know, Jack Emmer and, you know, Dick Adell. And, you know, I mean, it was like, I mean, this was like a, it was such a, a fun time. Um, losing every week, three weeks in a row, we were losing 10 to one at half to Brown Army in Maryland. But we were still having a blast. You know, it was fun. So who are some of those guys that helped you at Hofstra and, and uh, that helped build that program that Hofstra now has? You know, we had we had such a, a great opportunity at Hofstra because we were part time and because we practiced in the afternoons. You know, we could attract a really quality lacrosse person, you know, who worked full time. You know, maybe they were full time teaching. They were in public school or they, you know, they had other jobs. And Rich Donovan was our first full time assistant or not full time, but part time. And Rich came with me from post. He played at UMass, was incredibly knowledgeable, um, extremely loyal. Um, and he was terrific. Guys like Wayne Ament, who played at UMass. And they also went to my high school. So we knew each other. We were Jack Kelly disciples. So we, you know, we, we kind of believed in the same things. We had the same vision. Ernie Olson uh, played at Massapequa High School on Long Island, and Ernie was a, um, uh, Ernie um, went to Cortland State, um, terrific football and lacrosse player, great coach, who later uh, later on coached at Carolina. Um, we had guys like uh, our first, first full-time assistant was Chris Kolbeck, and uh, was, was a disciple of one Dave Cottle <laughs> and Bill Tierney. And he was, you know, he was just, uh, he changed the way I looked at, at coaching. And, and he was just a, a, a great coach, but even a better person. Just grounded in, in, in a, a set of values that I had never been around. I mean, just a terrific person. Uh, next, after that was Billy Wilson. You know, was our full-time assistant. It was now the head coach at the Air Force Academy. Then it was Joe Amplo, who was a full-time assistant, who's the head coach at uh, now at the Naval Academy. Did a great job at Marquette. Um, Seth Tierney was one of our volunteers, um, head coach at Hofstra. Um, another uh, another great great coach, Sean Smith, was a teacher. Coached football at Levittown Division. Levittown was one town away, so he could get out of school and just come right over to practice at three o'clock. So we had Sean Smith with us. My first grad assistant was John D. Tommaso, you know, three-time or two-time, three-time world team defenseman, uh, superintendent of schools later on, and now coming full circle, he's the volunteer assistant at St. John's, you know, after he's retired from being a um, superintendent of schools. So, um, you know, we just had some unbelievable Larry Quinn, Johns Hopkins, great. Uh, was our volunteer while he was going to law school at Fordham, you know, that first year along with John. So, I mean, we just had some, some fabulous people that we could lean on and learn from. Which gets me to every place you've ever been, you've been able to figure out the kids that you recruited to play for you, figure them out mentally, figure them out physically, uh, and, and to motivate them. When you're coaching a Hofstra kid, what was the important key to getting the Hofstra kids to play as hard and as tough as they did when you were there? You know, we, we, it took us a while to kind of figure it out, but, you, you know, we kind of used this kind of mantra of being on the turnpike. Uh, 
you know, Hofstra Stadium is located right on Hempstead Turnpike. And we, we, we really sold this blue-collar mentality that, you know, listen, you might, you might have a better pedigree than us. You might have, you have, might have slicker sticks, but we're going to fight for 60 minutes. Because, you know, even that last year in 2006, we actually had a poster made. We did it on a Sunday morning of um, all our seniors uh, in full equipment, you know, walking across Hempstead Turnpike. You know, we were selling this, like, grittiness and this. Um, and the guys, could, everybody can buy into that. They, everybody could buy into, you know, we weren't Virginia. We weren't Hopkins. We weren't Loyola. We weren't Maryland, you know, but we were Hofstra, and that was good enough. And and, um, and there was something that, that banded our guys, and, and it was that grittiness that we – um, that we tried to, to build on. You know, thinking back to those days, you protected your home stadium at the end. It, Hofstra was a tough place to play. And in fact, a bunch of the blue bloods at the end stopped coming there because they, you, you would put a loss on them. Why, would, why was Hofstra so good at home? You know, there was something just, um, I can't, you know, it's, it's hard to explain but it was something magical about playing at night, you know, playing on, you know, we would play, we played one year, we played Hopkins. And I remember the article in Newsday um, on a Tuesday night in front of 8,800 people. Um, and with no, no marketing, no advertising, no marketing, you know, people came to see Hopkins, you know, there's no doubt about it. And it was a Tuesday night, you know, so, so people, if you were playing a high school game at, at four o'clock, you know, you could rush over and, and you know, get dressed and, and get over to Hofstra Stadium. Um, and there was just something magical about that. And um, and it was it just kind of our, our guys rose to that. You know, they rose to that occasion that people were there to see see Hopkins. They're they're there to see Maryland. They're there to see, you know, Loyola. But, you know, when they leave, you know, we want them to remember you now. Sadly, you know, and, and this is the case, I remember one year we played in front of, again, a huge crowd of Hopkins on a Tuesday, and we played Drexel on Saturday, and there was maybe 800 people at that game because mm -hmm. people, you know, couldn't relate to Hofstra-Drexel, but they could relate to Hopkins and Hofstra. And that was okay. You know, listen, if that's how it was, then so be it. Well, you, you, like I said, you protected the home field unbelievably there. Now, the let's can we jump to – to 2006, your last season, an incredible mm -hmm. year for your team. Tell me, tell us about that team. You know, that was a, at Hofstra, you know, Hofstra was a place. I remember one time um, going, I was, I went to the president of the university and his assistant, uh, it was uh, president James Short and assistant was named was Dick Block. And I want to get an audience with them because I was really trying to, yeah, I, I get an increase in a budget or maybe more scholarship money or a full-time assistant. I, I was probably in there to do something. And I was bragging about our graduation rate, you know, and our graduation rate here, you know, was greater than the, and they both looked at me and said, you know, we don't care about graduation rate. You know, Hofstra is a place for a student. Maybe they come to school for one or two years and then they, they have to get a job or, you know, um, maybe it's a, it's a place for my daughter because it's closer to home and I don't want to send my daughter away at the time. But th they looked at it very differently than, than we were looking at it. And it just, and it hit me, and, and, and lacrosse was the same way. There were times where we, we brought some players in and it wasn't the right place for them and they left. Or, you know, um, one of our best players uh, one year came to me December before his um, – before the, the spring of his last year, said, coach, I hate school. I'm out of here. You know, I was like crushed inside, but he ended up being a New York City policeman, married, children, has a wonderful life. You know, who am I to say that you needed to graduate from college? If you're miserable and you hated school, I, I get it. You, you know, so, so the reason I tell you all that is because when guys stayed, when it was the right place for them, then we had a chance. And that last year in 06, uh, we had a we had a, a really talented group of seniors, um, led by John Orson, 
you know, who's an assistant coach now at Navy. Um, and, and we had a really good coaching staff. And the guys had been in the program for four years. They had been some tough losses, some good wins. So they understood both sides of it. And uh, the first game against UMass, Kevin Understein was a sophomore on that team who's an assistant coach at Carolina now. Uh, we play UMass in about a 20 degrees at best up there. I remember after the game, my only memory, uh, we lost to UMass on that opening day, and my only memory was um, that I was talking to the team afterwards, and Kevin Understein was shaking. I mean, violently, he was so cold. Like, he couldn't get warm. And, um, and then we went 17 in a row. And it just, you know, we got on a roll. We beat, uh, you know, we, we played Hopkins, Carolina, and Princeton in eight days. And, you know, those games were giveaways in a sense that if, you, if you're competitive, it's going to prepare you for your conference league play. If you win a game, well, you stole one, and maybe that helps your RPI, and maybe you have a shot in that large bid. If you win two, you increase your chances now, we had won two. You know, we played Hopkins on a Saturday and, and, and Carolina on a Tuesday or Wednesday. And now you're just playing Princeton with this unbelievable amount of confidence. You know, it was – the games were easy, you know, so to speak, you know, at that point. But um, – and then um, and, and then we just got in the conference and, you know, the conference tournament and, and so on. And, you know, we got in a roll. Well, you had an unbelievable team. What was your overall record? For some reason, 19 and three well, or something like that. Well, 17 and two. 17 and two. Won 17 in a row. Um, first round, you know, we beat Providence. And now we have the big matchup rematch with UMass. Um, we were the first game at Stony Brook at 12 o'clock. And the second game was Hopkins Syracuse. And the cool thing about that game was a lot of cool things about it, but the first one was it was sold out and we're driving the bus and we pass a sign and it says, you know, one of those temporary signs on the side of the road game sold out and, you know, 8,000, 8,500, whatever it was at Stony Brook. And, and that was really cool. And people were there to see Hofstra go to the final four for the first time. Um, and that, that was my, that's my first memory. My second, Chris Understein um, was our senior and had a phenomenal year, uh, senior attackman. He had maybe 75 points, but most points he's had in his four years. And Jack Reed was a defenseman from UMass, and Jack Reed owned Chris for the first three years. You know, Jack, uh, Chris couldn't do anything against him. Jack was a terrific player. And in um, the first half, Chris scores three goals. He's having the game of a lifetime. And, we, you know, very happy for him. But after one of his goals, he gets hit, gets a concussion. So we're walking out at halftime. We're up 7-3 at half. And uh, I, I, we're walking out from the locker room into the stadium. I put my arm around him. I show him the scoreboard. I said, hey, Chris, great half. You scored all seven goals. And he looks at me, he goes, must be some sort of record. He had no idea. He had no idea where he was. He didn't know if he scored a goal, if he was playing back at, you know, Shoreham Waving River. You know, he just didn't remember. So second half, we go out. We have a 7-3 lead. And I didn't, I asked around the week afterwards, but everybody on the team, including the coaches, not me, I don't think, but everybody wanted the game to be over. They just wanted to get to Philadelphia. Let's get to the final four. Let's get on the bus. And we forgot to play. And it was a team effort. Every senior made a critical mistake. Uh, we end up going to overtime. We have a shot at overtime. Um, Doc Snyder makes a great save in overtime. And then we end up giving up a goal and losing. Um, and the guys were distraught. But, but the last memory I have about that was I remember going out and watching the Hopkins-Syracuse game just for a couple of minutes, and it was and the stadium was half empty. Mm. And I was like, people were there to see. And that's when I, you know, that's why I made that statement I made before, 
people were there to see Hofstra go to the Final Four for the first time, and uh, and we did not. Who who was who, who were some of the top players that you coached during that era at, at Hofstra? Who did who did if you walked away say this guy was the best player I ever coached at Hofstra? Who would that be? You know there were so many, um, and you know different positions. You know Doug Shanahan, the first Wharton winner, has to come to mind. You know for sure because he could face off, he could run the field, you know he could change momentum. You know he was he was that guy that that um, back in the day when you know we didn't play with Fogos, that you could give up a goal and he'd get your goal back in seven seconds, or you'd score, and we'd score again. You know, and he would create momentum and, and create this. And, and he was just a phenomenal. He had range. He could cut. He could play with both hands. Um, and, and he was terrific. But, you know, Nicky Polanco was a defender. Brian wow. Spolina as a defender. Um, you know, Brian with his long hair and his presence. And, you know, Nicky, 6'4", 6'5", who could run the field. And uh, Tommy Kessler. You know who could you know uh, unrecruited and you know scored was the was um, Hofstra's all-time leading scorer up until last year, you know until Ryan Tierney broke his record. Um, you know Tommy Kessler, Scott Dooley um, was a really effective attackman, changed direction from Yorktown. Um, you know terrific player. Um, you know uh, Kevin Warren, the head coach at Georgetown, Joe Amplo, John Orson. You know great role players, you know, great, great team, team guys, not stars, not necessarily all Americans. Although Kevin, you know, I think Kevin was an honorable mention his senior year as was John Orson, but great team first players. And, and that's what I meant before about when the guys stuck around for four years, you know, we had a chance, you know, to be, you know, to be competitive. And, and not only were you competitive, but you might have been one of the top two teams in the country that year. Uh, you, out, you could score, you could defend, you were tough, you 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 competed. So you, you lose that game, and you're like all of us. You're, you're devastated by the loss. And about that time, your son was he a, a freshman at Duke? Or was he, he was a, a junior? He was a junior at Duke. So the 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 whole fiasco with Duke lacrosse came out and now here you are 19 and three and the school that your son is at the school is your son at position opens up what made you go for it well it, it was a conversation that I had with Larry Lomity who was Peter Lomity's uh, which was a, a classmate of Matt's um Peter played at Landon and was mm -hmm. a junior at, at Duke as well. And um, I was sitting on the front porch uh, of our house in Farmingdale. And, um, you know, the, the dad said something to the effect of there's only one man that these guys would play for. You know, and I just said, well, who's that? And he said, you. And that's what really got me thinking. You know, I've been at Hofstra for 21 years. Uh, you know, I've been a post for three. Uh, you know, besides for spending four years in New Jersey, which is really Long Island, just New <laughs> Um, You know, I, I had never lived anywhere else. And and, and the thought of, you know, my, my daughter was, um, you know, she had graduated from Quinnipiac and Matt was a junior and my wife was working full time. You know, I never really considered. I, I'd never interviewed for another job you know, while I was at Hofstra. So um, it was scary, you know, and, and what was going on, but yet it was maybe this, this um, opportunity to do something good. You know, I mean, the coaching, uh, you know, lacrosse is lacrosse. You could be happy coaching junior high lacrosse. You could be happy coaching, you know, where you get a bunch of kids on a Saturday, on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, and nothing, nothing better than that. But, it was about maybe the chance of doing something good at a place where it was a mess. You know, it was a mess on, on a lot of different levels. And I will say this, I never, ever would have applied for it if um, Matt was not there. 
because I had insight to the families. I had insight to the players, the students, what kind of character, you know, who these people were. From the outside, I would have said, no way do I want any part of that. But because I did have some insight, you know, to the kids, to the place, to the coaches, um, you know, and that I, I thought that, you know, it got me thinking. Well, that's interesting. You know, you don't you forget that you had the insight of a parent who just happened to be in the lacrosse business because you would go down there to watch the kids play and you'd meet them at the tailgates and everything like that. So now you get the job. What was that like? What was your first semester coaching there like? It, you know, it, it was wild because, you know, from the outside, Duke had it all. You know, they had Coach K. You know, they had the ACC. They had the chapel on campus. They had this academic reputation. But the lacrosse piece, I mean, you know, we did not have a secretary or, or administrative assistant. You know, we did not have um, – I had an office in the back. Um, the two assistants have, you know, these little offices. And that was about it. You know, we had a phone an office <laughs> and it was, you know, it, we were on our own. Um, my friends would call me up like in October and they would say, how you doing? And I would say, I don't know. I said, nobody talks to me here. I said, <laughs> I said, Either everybody's really afraid of me or they really have a lot of confidence in me, but I don't know how I'm doing. And, 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 and none of it was about lacrosse, you know, all the media, all the media requests, you know, the, the case was still was ongoing investigation. Our players were walking on eggshells uh, in terms of their behavior. And, you know, we said, uh, you know, we said right from the beginning, I trust you. Um, you know, we want you to live as normal, uh, you know, a college life as possible. But we were also protecting, you know, the image of the three students who were accused of something they didn't do. And, and so, you know, that was that case did not unravel until April, you know, of 07. So um, that was very tenuous. If our guys did anything untowards, I heard about it. If um, one of my favorites was I got an email from a uh, from a woman who uh, accused one of our players of cutting her off on the road um, because. <laughs> because the car had a Duke lacrosse decal on it. So I had asked the team, I said, Hey, was anybody Saturday morning, you know, out on 15, 501. And, you know, maybe you made a turn and cut somebody off. And one of our players said, yeah, it could have been me. So I said, all right, here's this woman's email address. Would you please apologize? Say you're really sorry that you were whatever, you know, and we were dealing with things like, like that. Um, pretty much every day, but it was, um, you know, I won't say it was fun, but it, it was, yeah, that's what I was sent there to do. To take care of those things. So you win your first title in 2010. Now you'd coached 21 years at Hofstra for at, at uh, CW post. What did it feel like to win that first title? You know, Again, my 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 favorite memory of, of walking off the field when all the celebrating on the field is over and, and people are starting to head to the locker room like you kind of don't want to leave the field because you don't want to let this go and and you want to and and you're walking and I remember looking up into the stadium thinking about all the great coaches who don't get to experience this. I thought about guys like Rich Donovan and Ernie Olson and Greg Canella. And, you know, guys who, who are great coaches, but, you know, we just had some more resources. You know, we, we had, you know, maybe it's the climate, maybe it's the, you know, the school itself, um, the academic reputation. The, you know, we have advantages that, you know, we, you know, you don't have at other places. And I thought about, you know, all those guys who really are great coaches um, and don't get the recognition that they deserve because um, sometimes winning and losing, you realize, and it sounds really corny, but sometimes winning and losing is, is um, over, you know, you, you're lucky. We won 
Ball could have bounced the other way. You know, C.J. Castabile could have hit the goalie in the head. Ball bounces out. They pick it up. They go the other way. They score. You know, I mean, we've all seen that, you know, in our sport and, and how, um, how fragile that is. And, and then you come back and in 13 and 14, and then you went, you've been on a run for Final Fours all these years. What, what when you went to Duke, what did you think you needed to do to become the powerhouse that you are? What you know was there something from an X and O perspective? Was there some? Was it something in recruiting that you 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 focused in that it was going to be a little different, or was it just you know the way you treated the kids? What do you think has been the real keys to the success with you at Duke University? Well, I think that you know one of the things the support that we have here, um, you know, from the weight room to a sports psychologist to uh, nutrition, uh, which we didn't have then, but, you know, we tried to, to, um, we wanted to be part of Duke, you know, was our goal. You know, our goal was, this is a teaching institution and let's just be part of that. And let's bring all these other people with us um, as part of our staff, so to speak. Um, and, and let's really kind of maximize who we have, whether it's the academic advisors, whether it's the, you know, again, and, and get, you know, and, and create this environment where kids are feeling like they're cared for. And, and that was easy, right? That's an easy part because that just happens here organically every day. But, we, we, you know, I think we just tried to be ourselves. We tried to say, is the stuff that we were doing at Hofstra, can we, can we get away with it at the next level? Because this is the next level, right? Now, recruiting, we had to learn how to recruit here because that was different. You know, the, the, there are young men that wouldn't consider, you know, uh, Hofstra or Post, you know, the, but would consider Duke. Um, we had to figure that out. We had to figure out the academic part, you know, the honors and the AP courses. And, the, you know, while there are some very talented young men, they may not have had the preparation academically. So we had to kind of figure that out. But we wanted to create this place where um, everybody gets coached every day. You know, we call it the white team and the blue team, which is the white being the first team and the blue being the second. But, you know, and, and, and how the blue team makes the white team better by those guys getting coached just as hard as the white team gets coached. Um, and can we teach the guys how to play the sport the way we were taught, the way Jack Cayley taught us, Alan Lowe, you know, and those guys who taught us how to play the game simply and how to, um, you know, to enjoy the game as as an outsider who you know looking in you guys always seem to be a, a program that never let early season losses affect the way you improved and affect the way you play at the end of the year and it always seems like you're building towards the end of the season if you had an opportunity to talk to young coaches today about how you guys have been able to do that. What would you say? You know, I, I think, you know, Dave, if you remember back in the day, you know, um, that, that February period, well, if I go way back, <laughs> way back, right, we, we get the way back machine in college. We didn't start playing until March, right? Our, our first games were, you know, the middle of March. And, and, you know, February, maybe you started practice February 1st uh, at Rutgers. We used to have the weekends off in February. Practice Monday through Friday, weekends off. Monday through Friday, weekends off. Um, and then, you know, season began. Um, and then we started scrimmaging, like, for three weekends. And, you know, you didn't really keep score, but you kept score, right? And a lot of times, we'd scrimmage Saturdays and Sundays. You know, we went Saturday, Sunday, Saturdays for like two weeks, three weeks. And you get four scrimmages in five. Um, and sometimes you get battered in those scrimmages. And you always said it's good to lose a scrimmage because it really gets the guys focused and you can really get their attention. Well, now those early season games have really become those scrimmages. And they've become those where, yeah, you know what? If you have, if you have Duke on your chest, you're getting everybody's best effort and everybody's going to come after you. And if you're not ready to play, 
yeah, you're going to walk away some days and you're not going to win. To the young coaches, I would say that you can't be afraid to lose. You know, you can't be afraid to schedule games, um, which maybe your team is not ready for those games because maybe a team plays zone or maybe they are an invert team and you haven't worked on your invert defense or whatever it is, or you're playing two games on a weekend initially. But, you know, we, we always learn the most from our losses. You know, and that's always, you're never as good as you think you are when you win and you're never as bad as you are, you know, think you are when you lose. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's the, the biggest thing is you can't be afraid to lose. You know, there aren't very few undefeated seasons. I don't remember the last college team that went undefeated. You know, it's funny is, do you think that what you started this conversation off about talking about Duke, that, you know, they left you alone and you, you never heard from anybody either. They had great confidence in you or they didn't care or whatever. Do you think, you know, at the same losses at Johns Hopkins or, or Maryland or in the middle of the lacrosse world would be dissected, analyzed over and over again. But at Duke, you allowed it to kind of grow organically, you know, because they didn't have that outside pressure. You think that is something that has helped your program over the, in the past? There's no doubt. You know, those February games here, um, you know, with basketball, everything is about Coach K. Everything is about Duke basketball. This year, you know, even last year, right, during the, uh, you know, during the pandemic and we're playing in front of, you know, we were ranked pretty high. You know, we were doing pretty well for a period. We have a lo- the local newspaper here is the, um, the Raleigh News and Observer. There was not one article written about men's lacrosse last spring. I mean, you know, there's no more print. Um, the school newspaper, when I first got here, came out every day. And there, there used to be a reporter and the kids would, we would have human interest stories and we would have, you know, a pregame preview if we were playing, uh, you know, playing, um, you know, Bellarmine. And we'd have the whole Bellarmine scouting report they would have, you know, in the, in the newspaper. Now I think the paper might come out once a week. It's a digital edition. I don't read the digital edition. No, <laughs> I, I would pick up the paper and, and glance through it, you know, and, and see what the students have to say about the world. But I don't read, you know, I'd rather read the New York Times or the New York Post, see how the Giants are doing, you know. But it, it's, um, we do, we, we live in this, uh, it, it's, a, it's a lacrosse vacuum down here, for sure. Well, that gets me to, you. you've always had brothers on your teams, you know, if you had one brother, he could play and you knew the other brother. And now you have your son coaching with you. You've got uh, Ned Crotty, who who played at Duke, coaching with you. And then the great Ronnie Caputo. Tell us a little bit about Ronnie before we get to those other guys. Uh, you know, Ronnie, um, and I would say this behind, not behind his back, but yeah, behind his back. We call him an idiot savant. You know, <laughs> he looks at the game so differently his vocabulary is different. It's unique. He'll say things and I'll say, what do you mean by that? What does that mean? You know, and then like he'll say things to the team when he kind of gets rolling and I'll raise my hand and say, coach, can you just define what you just said or say it in like layman's terms? You know, he's got his own way of seeing the game, his own way of speaking the game, um, which is awesome. You know, and he, um, and, I, and again, I attribute it to the old school coaches, and I hate to say this old school, but guys who are weaned on coaching a lot of sports. He's coached football. He's coached basketball. He's coached different levels of lacrosse. Um, you know, and I, I can relate to all that because I did the same thing. But for those of us, you know, we all see the, see the game differently. Um, and for, But for those of us who have coached other sports, you know, we steal. It's easy for us to steal from football, from basketball, from from lacrosse and, um, you know, and from our experiences and, you know, and from our own personal experiences. So he is just, um, you know, he's got a, a brilliant, um, a, a brilliant perspective on, and, and he can coach anything, you know, it's, uh, he coached uh, on the offensive side and good coaches can do that in our sport. You know, he's coached on the offensive side. Now he's the defensive side. Um, if I asked him just to do goalies and face off guys, you know, he could do that. I mean, it's uh, because in high school you had to do that. And you had to be creative. 
and you had to make the most out of what you didn't have, you know, and, and, and you didn't whine about it. You just, you know, you went about your business. Talk to me a little bit about Matt and Ned, what they bring to your staff. You know, it's kind of like, um, not that we did this on purpose, but, you know, I've always admired Coach K's, um, that he has Duke guys on his staff. Duke guys who can, you know, if, if, a, if a student is going to get up and maybe complain about, you know, the, his course load or his schoolwork or his, you know, these guys can look at him and say, seriously? You know, because they've been there. Um, but they also, you know, I think Matt and Ned played here at a time that was so controversial, but yet it's the foundation of our program. You know, 06 and 07 is the foundation. There is this um, protection of um, of the program that anybody who decides that they want to come to Duke, you're going to live with that pressure. It's never going to go away. You, we're going to be in a hotel on a road trip, and somebody's going to come out of the bar and jump in the elevator and see a shirt that says Duke lacrosse, and they'll say, hey, man, you guys having a party? You guys, uh, you guys having dancers at the, at, you know, in your room? Invariably, that happens. You know, people, uh, flight attendants will say, "Hey, whatever happened to those three guys?" You know, and and our guys have got to be able to be polite, knowledgeable, respectful, um, and that's not easy, you know, to ask of eighteen and twenty-two year olds. But Matt and Ned are kind of reminders of that period for them, um, and and I I just think that's really helpful. And the fact that, you know, they've both played at a high level for so long. They both had the professional experience. They had the international experience, you know, so when they can relate and tell stories or, you know, about, you know, it's things that kids can relate to. You were three times coach of the year. You won three national championships at, at Duke. You've won world team championship. You're the all-time winning coach uh, in, in division one history. Did, when you were teaching science at East, you know, and graduating from East Meadow high school, did you ever envision any of this? Not for one second. Um, my goal, I, I wanted to be a science teacher. I wanted to be a varsity football coach and an assistant lacrosse coach. That, that was the goal. And, um, I, I was a seventh grade science teacher my first year out, five periods of teaching seventh grade general science. You haven't lived until you teach eighth period <laughs> science for the fifth time of the day. And you're talking about a nucleus and a proton and a neutron and an electron. Did I use that joke already? Did I say that once? <laughs> Maybe I said it already. Maybe I said that third period. And um, I would go in the faculty room, and these were very loyal, dedicated, you know, educators. But they were all smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, complaining about the students. I said, I can't do this for 30 years. I said, I don't know where I'm headed, but I can't do this, you know. But yet the money was, was good. The hours were great. It was such a, in, in fact, my first year um, teaching, um, I didn't get the job until three weeks into the school year, until in September. So, um, you know, it was such a well-paying district uh, on Long Island that there were no coaching jobs. I couldn't find, and, and it was a big district. There were three high schools. There were like four junior highs. There was not a, uh, there was not a football, basketball, lacrosse, baseball, track. There was nothing to be had because teachers got paid extra and got paid well. Um, and so the first year, I, you know, I, I, I found myself just not even involved in athletics. Mm. So I'm going to use a term that 25 years ago was there. It wasn't a term. It, uh, and now it seems to be from again from an outsider looking in one of the biggest challenges that you know, the guys in your profession have roster management yeah supply and demand right the supply is greater than the demand you know um it's uh 
here's here's a here's one that I'm facing this morning. We we need new turf on our practice facility. It's eight years old. It's a little bit worn. They want to replace it in January. Now we have a grass field that our women use, and we have two fields that we use, and we use them both. Sometimes we'll use a full field and a half. Sometimes we use two full fields. Um, with 52 guys on the roster, it's it's a godsend, right? So they want to replace the turf. It'll be six weeks to do one, so we'll only have one field, and then six weeks for another and do the other. So 12 weeks, so basically the whole spring semester, you know, we would only have one field. So now, you know, do we hold off and not replace the turf, which might be a dangerous situation? Or do we practice on one field with 52 guys, which would have to be really creative, and it wouldn't be as good an experience for our students? This way, with 50, you know, with two fields and 52, you can manage that a little bit. The hard part is game time. Um, we are going to play 17 games this spring, which is the NCAA maximum. Right. We're going to start the season and play Friday, Sunday, and then play Friday, Sunday the next week. We got to get kids in games. We got to figure out how to get 35, 40 kids. I don't know if we can get 52 in, you know, but we got to figure out how to get playing time for more students. Um, and then figure out as the, you know, as the season progresses, you know, and how to do that. But um, it, it is a it is an absolute challenge so that, you know, our goal every year as a coaching staff is we want our students to have an extraordinary experience. That's it. No championships, no wins, losses. And, and, and so that becomes that game that that roster management becomes a huge impediment to that extraordinary experience. How about pro lacrosse? Pro lacrosse, man. The other day I was, I, I was actually on Facebook and I was on, um, I don't know, it was maybe indoor lacrosse and I was watching some 1970s of the Long Island Tomahawks against the, uh, was it the Quebec, Quebecois? You know, something <laughs> like that. There were, there were six teams. It was the summer of my sophomore year in college. And there was a summer indoor league and at Nassau Coliseum. And they played like 40 games. And then started going through the history of like, um, you know, we had the, um, was it the, the All-American Lacrosse League that one spring? It lasted mm -hmm. about half a year. Um, you know, the, obviously Major League Lacrosse, obviously, you know, now with the PLL. It's such a... You know, I, I give Paul and his brother so much credit. It is such a difficult undertaking. You know, the now we you know we have the bar, barnstorming. You know, to, to move from town to town. You know, I, I get it. You know, I, I was at the Hofstra event this year, which I thought the crowds were great. You know, that weekend uh, it was a Fourth of July weekend as well. Um, it's just such a hard thing, but I do. The television coverage is awesome, and I and again, um, you know, I hope it's sustainable. I hope the lacrosse community really continues to to back it and get behind it. But I know just the history how difficult it is as a business, um, you know, in this day and age. World Games. The World Games are fascinating. Um, I can't stand the rules, <laughs> you know, and now they've, they've cut the games even shorter from 20 minutes to 15 minutes, but I love the level of athlete and I love their commitment. You know, it, it is that experience that we had in Israel, you know, listen, so we, again, the, the, we easily could have lost, right? The goal doesn't count, go to overtime, you lose in overtime, whatever, um, but just the fact that we were playing lacrosse in Israel for like two weeks, I never would have gotten to Israel. I never would have visited Jerusalem. And our sport allows us sometimes these opportunities. And to be with the people that I was with, you know, to be with Tony Resch, Seth Tierney, Joe Amplo, Jimmy Butler, Skip Lickfuss, you know, um, you know, all these people, wonderful. I mean, just, and the players, 
you know, we're winning Trump's all. You know, for the U.S. guys, it was not about individual. It was not about goals and assists. It was about, let's, can we play? How well can we play on the last day? And that was really, that was, it was an incredible experience. Sixes. Can I be honest? Yes. Not a fan. Yeah. You know, I mean, listen, I, I get it. I understand. It's fast. It must be fun to play. Um, but, you know, to me, um, I'm just a fan of, you know, of what we do and, and how we do it, whether it's at the professional level, even the international have only 23 guys on your roster. Right. You know, um, I, I just love the team concept. I love the game that we grew up with. I, I don't, you know, kind of get the strategies and, you know, or I don't think anybody gets the strategy, knows what those are just yet and how you develop a team, what, how your roster is built. Um, it just must be fun to play. And, and so I, you know, I, I get that, but I'm just not a right now, right now. I'm not a fan. I'm open. All right. Ed Danowski. My brother, great freaking guy. <laughs> uh, actually, two Ed Danowskis in my life, right? Yeah. One is my brother, right? Who, like I said before, is 14 years older, and he coached football and lacrosse at Seaford High School. So when I was 14, 15 years old, right, he's 28, 29, and, you know, Saturday, Sunday mornings, they were watching game film. Harry Curtis was the head coach, and, they're breaking down film and, and looking at that. And I'm in eighth grade, ninth grade. And that's what's going on in the, in the living room. You know, they're watching Seaford High play Roosevelt High School. Um, you know, every year, my brother had, for about five or six years, his best player would go to Johns Hopkins. It was um, uh, Don Crone was an attackman, yeah. uh, face-off guy, Maimon. Um, you know, the, the Seaford High School or uh, West Point. This guy, John Hennessy, uh, went to Army. And and so, you know, Seaford's a very small town on the South Shore of Long Island. But my dad, my brother was a history teacher. Um, the other Ed Donowski in my life um, was my dad. And, um, you know, way before I was born, I was born later on in his life. Uh, he was 44, right, when I was born. Um, but he had this you know, played at Fordham University, was the first of his family, 15 children, first of his family to go to college, um, goes to Fordham on a football scholarship. He was a three-sport athlete, football, basketball, and baseball. And um, they beat Alabama at the Polo Grounds 2 nothing, in front of like 60,000 people. <laughs> they played NYU like NYU Fordham football, Yankee Stadium, 70,000 people. It was, that's what it was then. Um, played for the New York Giants for eight years. Originally drafted by the Boston Braves. Well, not drafted, but signed or whatever. And then, and played when Jack Mara owned the Giants, right? The grandfather of the current uh, John Mara, right? Who's the president of the Giants. Um, and played eight years, and they won two NFL championships and, and lost, I think lost one or two, lost to the Packers and, and, and someone else. Uh, joined the Navy, spent four years in the Navy as a lieutenant commander, uh, was in Guam when the, uh, when the war ended. He was a physical fitness instructor on an uh, aircraft carrier. Um, came back and was a, was a teacher at Havistraw High School, coached football. And then later became the head coach uh, at Fordham, his alma mater, until they dropped football in 54. When they dropped football, uh, then he was very happy just being a, uh, a junior high phys ed teacher, uh, coach football. Um, and then maybe the last three or four years of his career, he coached junior high lacrosse. And that's when I was like in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Um, and he really believed in teaching fundamentals. He really believed it was his role to prepare the seventh and eighth graders for the ninth grade team. You know, teaching them how to play with both hands, teaching them how to pass and catch and shoot. And, and that was his. And, and, um, and, and probably I, I take a lot more. 
from him than I realize. You made me just think about that. Yeah. Thanks. Now, Thanks. Well, I got one more for you. Uh, I'm going to use a maiden name here, Katie Donowski. Kate Donowski, assistant coach of the Beth Page Golden Eagles. Uh, they're trying to get her to coach basketball again. Uh, she's um, she went to Quinnipiac um, when she, when she played for the um, infamous, famous Steffi Samaras, right at Quinnipiac. And uh, she said to me when she when she um, it was a perfect school for her. Um, she was a defender in uh, in high school at Farmingdale. They made her an offensive player, and um, she actually scored the winning goal against Sacred Heart in the third overtime when she was a senior which was pretty cool. But Kate, um, she said to me when she graduated, dad, I'm never going to run a sprint the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, you know, getting up early and running and, and all that. But Kate's a third grade special ed teacher uh, in, in the Beth Page School District. And she uh, and coaches, assistant coach Beth Page, um, one of their better players um, is now a freshman at uh, East Carolina and their best junior just committed to Loyola College. Wow. Going to be a Greyhound. All right. The city that reads. Mm. <laughs> Charm City. Balmer, Maryland. My second home. Second home. Second home, man. Love that town. You know, from, you know, Federal Hill to Hunt Valley to, you know, Timonium. Come on. I mean, we've spent, if you're a lacrosse coach, you know, my sophomore year uh, in high school, uh, East Meadow High School made a trip. Jack Cayley, Alan Lowe would take us down, and we played boys Latin, and we played uh, St. Paul's. We played uh, my senior year. We played John Carroll. We played McDonough uh, my senior year. Uh, every other year, you know, we went on a trip, and um, that it was the Mecca. You know, Baltimore was the Mecca of lacrosse, and, and that's where if you wanted to to build a reputation, you had to go down there and be successful. Um, we stayed at the University of Maryland, had visiting team dorms up at yeah. uh, up right outside uh, Bird Stadium. Bird Stadium, yeah. right? We uh, we slept there. I mean, it was great, great, unbelievable memories. The, the last thing that I forgot to touch on is what is it like to coach in the ACC? You know, it's um. When I was at Hofstra, um, we used to look at the ACC as – we used to get those guys at the right time. You know, we used to get them after they beat each other up. And I didn't quite fully understand that, you, you know. But my first semester here, I would come to uh, uh, Duke men's soccer games. And, I, I you know, I, I went – Hofstra soccer, you know, we played on a, a Tuesday afternoon or whatever. And there some people at the game, but it was – you know, on a side field with no stands. Here, you know, there's a couple thousand people, and it's Duke, Carolina, and, and people are going nuts. And and so right as, as soon as you step on campus, there's this rivalry. And then you live the basketball season where the non-league games, believe it or not, Cameron is not full. You know, there's some empty seats in the corners, and there's some people who don't show up. But all of a sudden, the ACC rolls around, and there's not a seat to be found, you know, an empty seat to be had. And lacrosse is the same way. It's um, it's it's athletic. Um, there's size, um, unbelievable coaching. You know, um, if you know you're not prepared, you know you're going to get knocked back. And last year, the last place team in our conference won the national championship. <laughs> the team that goes two and four, you know, wins the championship and and well deserved. You know, and and. Uh, it's just, it is really, um, it's fun. You know, it, it's fun. Well, I know you're a busy man, and I can't tell you how much I enjoyed listening to you speak. And uh, I appreciate you letting us do this and look forward to seeing you this spring. And I hope your team plays, I hope you your team plays like you want them to play this spring, Coach. Thanks. I really, uh, I tell you what, I like this group. Um I think the, the thing about for all athletes, you know, for all students everywhere, it's just, it's, it's back to, it's more back to normal. 
You know, you have a sophomore class that didn't really have a freshman year. Even if they, even if we played, it was just so unique and so different. Our juniors this year, they will play their first home ACC game in front of a crowd. They have never played an ACC game and their juniors in college in front of a crowd. So wow. it's going to be unique and fun and exciting. And Dave, I really thank you for this opportunity. It's been really fun, uh, you know, going down memory lane. I can't wait until I can reverse this and ask you the questions. Hey, 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 hey. We got a bad connection here. I can't hear a thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Coach, I'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. Bye. Peace.